Greetings, and welcome to Ed Times Weekly Podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Happy holiday. Uh, welcome to 2009, our Shavuot, or Pentecost celebration. Shavuot, among other things, as we heard earlier this morning, commemorates the giving of the Ten Commandments. Yesterday, Debrio, the Ten Words on Mount Sinai. And so in honor of that, I want us to, uh, like us to read from the beginning of the Ten Commandments today, and we're going to take our message from that. So Exodus 20, uh, verses 1 to 6, and we have it on the overheads as well. So follow along with me. Exodus 20, uh, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words... I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an image in the form of anything in the heavens above, or the earth beneath, or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to thousands of generations to those who love me and keep my mitzvot, keep my commandments. Amen. This passage here raises a very difficult issue, if you read carefully, uh, I think it's verse 5, of the jealousy of God. Probably, perhaps, the most offensive of all of God's attributes. Uh, there's a best-selling book came out a few years ago entitled Soul Searching by uh, uh, Chris Smith, and it discusses the religious beliefs of young people uh, in America. And in his book, we have it on the overhead, in this book he summed up what most young American adults' views of God are. And he summed it up as what he calls moralistic, therapeutic deism. Then the next slide, a deism means that yet there's a God, but it's not intimately connected to my daily life. And in the next slide, moralistic, therapeutic, that refers to the belief that if I do my part, if I live a free moral life and care for people, then it's God's job to meet my needs and take me to heaven. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. If I do my part, it's God's job to meet my needs. God's not necessarily there all the time in every moment of my life, but, but I believe in Him, and He's there in the background when I need Him. Uh, and if I live a good enough life, he'll take care of me. But this attitude of God that we're focusing on today, the jealousy of God, blows that whole paradigm out of the water. Let's look at this text of Exodus 20 about the jealousy of God uh, and ask three questions put on the overhead. Number one, what is it? Uh, number two, what it calls for from us? And number three, how we can answer that call. So again, the jealousy of God, what is it? What it calls for from you, and how you can answer that call. So number one, what is it? What is the jealousy of God, this, uh, this difficult uh, and offensive uh, attribute of God? <clears throat> and note that it appears here right in the middle of the Ten Commandments, at the very core of the Bible. So you can't avoid it, uh, or ignore it, uh, or minimize it. Shemot, uh, Exodus 20, verse 5. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And it's not just a theme, by the way, in the Hebrew Scriptures alone. In 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul talks to the Corinthian believers, and he says, look at what you're doing in chapter 3. He says, are you trying to provoke God's jealousy? The jealousy of God is something the whole Bible teaches. 
And it's confusing. Uh, and one of the reasons it's confusing is because jealousy, everywhere in the Bible, for everybody else, is called a sin. So, for example, look at 1 Corinthians 3.3. 3. Paul says, if you, Paul says, you're still worldly. Why? Because there's jealousy and quarreling among you. Well, look at Romans 13, uh, 13. Do nothing in dissension and jealousy. Many times there's a whole long list of sins in the Bible that will keep you out of heaven, and jealousy is always right there in the middle of the list. And one of the great tragic stories of the Bible is this Saul, who was beaten up by jealousy of David and his popularity, and it warped uh, King Saul. It turned him into an evil person. So everywhere in the Bible, jealousy is a sin, except here, where it comes to God. So what's with that? And the answer is, the word jealousy is kind of like the word fear in the Bible. Because the word fear, it's typically a negative word. The Bible's constantly exhorting us, you know, fear not. But the Bible also says that there's a kind of fear that's a godly fear, called the mind, the fear of God. So there's a bad fear and there's a good fear in the Bible. A bad fear and a godly fear. In the same way, there's a bad jealousy, which is most jealousy, but there's also a godly jealousy. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, when he says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Messiah, that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Paul specifies that he has a godly jealousy for the Corinthians because he knows that's not the normal kind of jealousy that most of us have most of the time. So what's the difference between normal jealousy, carnal jealousy, and godly or godlike jealousy? Well, here's the difference. Normal jealousy is what we see in King Saul. It's basically envy. People of Israel, they love King Saul, but then here comes this new young champion, David. He slays Goliath. Uh, he's a terrific general. God gives him all these victories. He also happens to be attractive, and he's a poet. And then the straw that breaks the camel's back is when they have this big parade. And Saul hears them saying this in 1 Samuel 18, verse 7. Shaul, Saul has slain his thousands, but David, David, his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom itself? And from that time on, Saul kept a very close eye on David. Saul was so jealous, he imagined that David was trying to steal the love of his people away from him. Uh, and that David wanted to usurp the throne. So Saul went crazy and filled with hatred and, and tries to kill David, right? Saul's, yeah, so Saul's envy and jealousy turns him into an evil, murderous man. Why? Because envious love is selfish. Because it's all about you. It starts with being upset because I've lost love, but it ends up with nothing but destructive anger. It's all about your ego. It's all about your wounded pride. And so, therefore, love is replaced by anger. Saul so first loved David, and it's replaced by hatred and anger. You, you turn on the person whose love you lost, who you think you've lost. But in contrast to this, there's godly jealousy. Look at 2 Corinthians 11. Paul's upset here with the Corinthians. And he says in, in verse 2, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. 
I promise you to one husband, to Messiah, that I may present to you to him as a pure virgin. And then verse 3, 2 Corinthians 11, 3. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Messiah. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Yeshua other than the Yeshua that, that we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. Paul's upset with these Corinthians. He's rebuking them. He's angry at them for being so easily led astray by the, from, the, from the true gospel. So you have to see this balance here. Paul's love for them is what I'm, I'm going to call angered love. He's angry. He says, what are you doing? Uh, why are you going in this direction? Well, what's wrong with you? I don't want to let you go down this destructive path. It's not good for you. So Paul's love is, is angered love. But it's godly. Why? Because it stays love. It doesn't turn into hatred. Godly jealousy is angered love that stays love. So it's not so much about you and your hurt pride, but it's about the loss of the relationship. Godly jealousy is love fighting against extinction, whereas normal jealousy is love that's gone extinct and turned to bitterness uh, and resentment and malice because of your self-centeredness and pride, your hurt pride. And now you just hate the person that you used to love before. But godly jealousy is angered love that stays love. It stays committed to rescuing and restoring that crumbling love relationship. And winning that person back. And pursuing them and wooing them and rescuing them. And that's the reason why in the end, godly jealousy is so rare and unique in this world. Now let's look at how the Lord approaches this. Because, you know, in the ancient world, everybody had had multiple gods. You had to deal with all these different gods and keep them all happy. And therefore, pagan religion was kind of a lot like politics. Always compromises, try to keep everybody happy. And now God, the God, comes along and says, no. If you're going to relate to me, it's not like politics. It's not like paganism. It's more like a marriage. For God to say, I'm a jealous God, is him to say, I don't want you to treat me like other gods. I want your exclusive commitment. I want to be the center of your life. I want it to be a love relationship. And therefore, relating to me is like relating to a marriage. Now, this was totally unique in the history of religion. No other God, no other religion had ever said that before. An exclusive commitment to one God who would be at the very center of your life had never been heard of before. And it's just as crazy today in our secular world. A lot of people, of course, say they believe in God, but for the most part, it's just moralistic, therapeutic deism. Which means I believe in God, but he's not at the center of my life. He's around, but he's not very active in the world or active in my life. But I can ask him for things, you know, that I, when, when I want, and when I want him around, I can then ask him, and it's his job to meet my needs. C.S. Lewis put it on the overhead, puts it like this, in his book, The Problem of Pain. We don't really want a father in heaven. Sorry, Ted, about your song. No, 
<laughs> we don't want a father in heaven. We want a grandfather in heaven. <laughs> because fathers are demanding with their kids. You can't do this, you can't do that, you've got to do this, you, you, you can't eat this, you've got to eat this. But a grandfather, they're much more lenient. A grandfather likes to spoil their kids. <laughs> a grandfather just wants the kid to like him. A grandfather will let him do anything he wants. But we really don't believe in a loving God who's a father. And we certainly don't believe in a loving God who's a husband. We believe in a loving God who's sort of like a grandfather. Someone who just wishes you well uh, and, and supports whatever you think is important to you. But that's not, that is not the God of the Bible. That's not a jealous God. A jealous God says, I want a love relationship with you that's exclusive and intense. Which leads to the next point. I put this on the overhead. Number, so number one, if that's what jealousy of God, the jealousy of God is, it's angered love. If you turn away from him, it, it, it's angry, but nevertheless it stays love. It doesn't turn to evil. Then number two, what in the world kind of relationship is this calling for? So number one, jealousy of God is an angered love that stays love. And if that's true, what kind of relationship is God therefore calling for from you? Because the jealousy of God is calling for a relationship. The Bible says he's a jealous God. What does that mean? We'll put this on the overhead. He's calling for a particular kind of relationship. And the closest thing we have on this earth to that is marriage. So what kind of relationship is it? It's marked by three things. we put on the overhead as well. Three things. Number one, priority. Number two, fidelity. And number three, intimacy. Priority, fidelity, or faithfulness, intimacy. Let's look at each of these. And our text today on Shavuot, our text is the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments is showing us a jealous God. And it's important to understand the Ten Commandments in the context of the jealousy of God. God is saying, I am a jealous God, and therefore I want this kind of relationship with you. I want a marital relationship. Uh, and then next overhead, uh, and, and your motivation for obeying my commandments, God says, should be to deepen and to honor and to sow into this spousal love relationship. So what should characterize this relationship? Number one, priority. Look at Exodus 20, verse 4. You should not make, any, you should not make for yourself any image from anything in the heavens above or the earth beneath or the waters below. You should not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So what's the Lord talking about here? The vast majority of time that the jealousy of God is mentioned in the Bible, what provokes his jealousy is idolatry. But what's idolatry? What's an idol? Is an idol a bad thing? No. An idol, he says here, is anything. Look at Exodus 20, verse 4. You can make an idol of anything. Anything in the sky above, or the earth beneath, or on the surface of the earth, or the waters below. Anything at all. And God says, if you love anything more than me, that's an idol. And that provokes my jealousy. Why? Because I love you, he says. Uh, because we're married to one another. Uh, if you're my people and, and I'm your God, that's a marriage relationship. Uh, and it's natural and proper for a spouse to say, I have to have first place among all your relationships. 
In fact, that's the only way a marriage works. Marriages can be destroyed, of course, by bad things. Uh, drink, drugs, pornography, adultery, violence, abuse, bitterness, unforgiveness, anger. But most of the time, marriages, most marriages suffer and fail because good things become more important to you than your spouse. For example, sometimes even your parents can become more important to you than your spouse. So when a grieved spouse sees you as favoring your parents uh, over him or her, so for example, the, the wife may feel that the husband's parents, what the husband's parents say is more important to him uh, than what she says. Or the husband may feel that, that to the wife, her parents' love is more important to her than my love. Or the wife may say, well, his job is much more important to him than me. His job is his real wife. That's what really electrifies him. That's what really excites him and motivates him. And he's constantly choosing time commitments of his job over me. Or perhaps the husband spends all his time with his buddies, or all his time hunting and fishing, or working on his car, or whatever. And the wife says, these things are his real lovers, not me. Do you see what's going on here? Are these bad things? No. What's wrong with a career or making money to provide for your family? What's wrong with hunting and fishing? What's wrong with, with your parents? Nothing, nothing at all. These are all good things. Or what's wrong with children? Sometimes the husband will say, she's very, very involved with the children. She loves the kids. They're her life. They're her pride and her joy and her excitement, her all-consuming passion and attention and priority. I'm just leftovers. I'm chopped liver. <laughs> you see, you can usually tell what has the functional title to your spouse's heart. You can tell what is their real hope, their real joy. And if it's not you, if it's not their spouse, the marriage won't work. You've got to know that you have first place in the heart of your spouse. For the marriage to work, each spouse must give the other first place and priority in their love and commitment. And if you know that's not true, if you know it's the money or the job or the parents or the children, the marriage starts to fall apart. And in the same way, God is only asking what any spouse would ask for. God's saying, I don't want you just to serve me. Just to go through the motions, just to go to school on Shabbat, just to obey the Ten Commandments. I want you to love me. I want to have the priority in your life. I want your heart, not just your outward obedience, your external rituals. If you love anything more than me, if it's anything that gives you hope more than your relationship with me, if there's anything more important to you than your relationship with me, then you're provoking my jealousy. Because I want that kind of covenant relationship with you. He's saying, my son died for you. What more can I have done to show you my love? So let's get practical. Uh, when I get up in the morning, I have a chance to pray. Or I can first check on my emails and get back to people who, who are waiting on me uh, for, for some kind of response. Or I can check my Facebook. Uh, I can catch up on the news. 
I can get some work done before I go to the office in the morning. I can meet some pressing deadlines. I can work on my sermon, on my draft. I can respond to this urgent text to minister to someone who needs my help and my encouragement. All good things, right? What do I choose? Do I put the Lord first? Or do, do, do I do these other things, these good things, and let them crowd out my time and take my priority? Do I let the priority of the urgent take precedence over what's best and most important and what should be number one in my life? And when I do that, when I make those kind of choices, I'm putting myself in the arms of other lovers. When you do that, don't you see you're committing spiritual adultery? And it provokes God's jealousy. We, uh, we have a jealous God. He doesn't just want you to go through the motions of obeying Him. Saying to yourself, one of the rules, so I can go ahead and do them, He can bless me. Because that's just moralistic, therapeutic deism. Yeshua wants your heart. He wants your soul. So the first thing the Lord calls for from us is, is priority. A jealous God says, I want a priority in your life. I want to be first in your life. Matthew 8, verse 21. We read this. Another, another disciple comes to Yeshua says, Lord, let me go first bury my father. So Yeshua says, follow me. Let the dead bury their dead. Let the dead bury their dead. You follow me. What does he mean? Now, it certainly does not mean you shouldn't go to your own father's funeral. That's not what it's saying. The point is, Yeshua was speaking to a paternalistic culture, a patriarchal culture, in which family meant everything. Uh, and parents meant everything. And Yeshua challenges them and says, Nonetheless, I must come first. I must be first in your life. Even over your parents. Even over everything else. That's what it means to say you serve a jealous God. He must be first. Ask yourself, is he first in my life? Examine your life. Look at your time. What do you do when you first get up in the morning? Do you spend more time on Facebook and the news during the day than you do praying? Do you spend more hours a day watching TV than you do spend reading the Bible? So what does Yeshua require of us? Look in the overhead. Number one, priority. Number two, fidelity. What is fidelity? Fidelity is this. Love me and keep my commandments. So, uh, put on the overhead again. Number one, I'm a jealous God. No idols make me, number one, priority. Number two, I'm a jealous God, meaning obey my commands. Fidelity. So, how do you relate to God? I mean, how do you relate to Him means, number one, priority. And number two, holiness in your behavior. He wants you to be pure and holy and righteous and good and loving and merciful and forgiving and humble. And this includes obeying His commands, the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, which is a divinely inspired commentary on the Ten Commandments. Again, it's like a marriage. I made a promise to be faithful and loving husband to my wife Elizabeth. And it doesn't matter whether on any particular day I don't feel 100% the same way I felt on the day of our wedding. 
It doesn't matter because I made a commitment that transcends my day-to-day feelings. That's fidelity. That's faithfulness. It's not about my needs being met. It's about me being faithful. And the Lord's saying, I want you to show your fidelity to me by obeying me. Now, how does that relate to, to jealous love? Sometimes even angered love. But nonetheless, days love. You see, God's love is, is always driving you towards your sanctification, towards your holiness. Meaning, He's insistent on your eventual perfection. He's committed to making you into a breathtakingly beautiful being. Because only when He can love us perfectly, because our flaws are gone, will we ourselves finally be happy. And contrary to moralistic therapeutic deism, it makes no sense to say it's God's job to make me happy, because what you want won't make you happy. You only truly want will make you happy when you're holy. Think about it. What if God comes down and says, I'm going to meet your needs, all your needs. Great, that's great. Okay, would you want him to say that to a five-year-old? Anything a five-year-old wants, God's going to meet his needs. That five-year-old will be dead by the end of the day. (laughs) Okay, how about a 15-year-old? The 15-year-old will be dead before the month's out. (laughs) Okay, how about a 25-year-old? Well, some of you are saying, now wait a minute, David. (laughs) I want you to know that your 50-year-old self will think of your 25-year-old self the same way your 25-year-old self thinks of your 5-year-old self. If God would automatically meet what you believed were your needs, He would not be a loving God. He is not a grandfather in heaven. He's a father. And He's a spouse. Yeshua is your bridegroom. He's a jealous God who loves you with fierce spousal love. And His jealous love will someday turn you into a person who's wise and good and holy and therefore will be happy. Put this on the overhead. C.S. Lewis, again, the problem of pain, writes this. You ask for a loving God? You have one. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. Not the, the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate but the consuming fire himself. The love that made the world. Persistent and an artist's love for his work. Providence and venerable is a father's love for his child. Jealous, inexorable, exacting as love between the sexes. If I fall in love with a woman, do I cease to care whether she's fair or foul? Do I not rather first then begin to really care? Love may forgive all infirmities and love still in spite of them, but love cannot cease willing their removal. Love is more sensitive than hatred itself to every blemish in the beloved. Of all powers, love forgives the most, but condones the least. Love is pleased with a little, but demands all. What we now uh, here now call our happiness 
is not the end that God chiefly has in view. Because only when we are such as He can love us without impediment will we, in fact, finally, only be truly happy. God gives the happiness that there is, not the happiness there is not. To be God, to be like God, or to be miserable. Those are the only three alternatives in the universe. If we don't learn to eat the food, the, the, the only food the universe grows, we shall starve eternally. God is a jealous God, and therefore He's after your holiness. You say, but I want God to make me happy. Don't you understand? Your happiness is on the far side of your holiness. On the near side is nothing but misery. And therefore God's jealous love says, I'm not going to let you live this any way you want. I'm not going to do it. And with this on the overhead as well. Love can forgive flaws, but it can't stop willing them to be gone. If you love someone, think about this. You can't just sit there and say, I don't care what you do. I don't care if you destroy yourself. No, you know that. In fact, the more you love them, the more you say, I'm going to come after you. I'm going to pursue you until you live in the way you want to. Because otherwise, you're never going to flourish. Otherwise, you're never going to have the delight that I want you to have. So God being a jealous God means he's calling for a relationship of number one, priority. Uh, number two, uh, fidelity. And then on the overhead, number three, intimacy. Look at Exodus 20. Right before the Lord says, I'm a jealous God, he says, I'm your God. That's covenant language. He says, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And it happens over and over again. The Lord's constantly saying it. For example, Exodus 6, verse 7. I'll take you to be my own people, and I'll be your God. And the Hebrew verb used here, lakach, to take, is used to take in marriage. The Lord says, when I enter into a covenant relationship with you, you give yourself to me, I give myself to you. That's covenant marriage relationship language. Because when you say, I'm yours, what does that mean? I'm at your disposal. I'm giving myself to you. I'm opening myself up to you. And so, then the overhead, please, right in the heart of declaring himself to be a jealous God, the Lord says, I'm yours. I give myself to you. Give yourself to me. Let us be intimate. Now, you know that if we relate to God's love in the wrong way, we're prone to fall into the error of either legalism or license. You know, one of these, these two extremes. So you can put all our emphasis on, you better obey, you better be moral, you better be good, or God's going to get you. Or we can go to the other extreme. Well, that's not really up to you. You have to choose what, uh, you know, how you want to live. Because God forgives, God understands. Everybody has to decide what's right or wrong for them. What nonsense. Now what solves and what transcends both of these two extremes of legalism and license? The answer is the jealousy of God. Angry love that stays love. You see, you're not allowed just to live any way you want. But the motivation for living for God has to be a motivation of love. You see, if you're really in love with someone, you want to know and you want to do what pleases them, right? And even if they don't give you a list of what they want, you make your own list. Because the essence of love is this. And put this on the overhead. The essence of love 
is your wish is my command. You know you're in love when you feel that way about someone. Your wish is my command. I want to do this for you because I love you so much. Uh, it doesn't even feel like I'm obeying anything you're asking me to do. Why? Because it's my pleasure to conform my life to the will of the Beloved. And that's how we're supposed to relate to God. He says, I'm giving myself to you. You give yourself to me. We're supposed to love Yeshua like that. We're supposed to obey Him out of love. We're supposed to look at the law of God, look at the Ten Commandments romantically. Romantically. We're supposed to say, Your wish, Lord, is my command. And even if you didn't say, Lord, thou shalt not, I would want to know what pleases you and gladly give it to you. That's what a jealous God is looking for. That's what a jealous God calls for. That's what a jealous God demands. Why? Because He loves you. So He's calling you to, number one, a relationship of priority. Number two, a relationship of fidelity, faithfulness. Number three, a relationship of intimacy. And so now we've looked at now what the jealousy of God is and what he calls for from us, but then the overhead, uh, the overhead. Uh, and number three, the last point, how now can we answer that call? How can we answer that call? Because you see how high a bar that is? The jealousy of God is a difficult and a complex topic because it combines both, both, on the one hand, the wrath and holiness of God and also the love and the mercy and the grace of God. And we see a picture of this in, in the human relationships when you really love someone and you're losing them or they're hurting themselves. And you, you, you just don't sit there and say, oh well, no, you get angry, but it's an angry love. And because of our selfishness, this anger can often turn into hating that person. But godly angry love is angry love that stays love. And that's a very high bar. Because God's not calling to just for compliance, but for an exclusive love relationship. And so when we sin, when we disobey, we're not just breaking the rules. The way, the way a subject breaks the rules of a king. Or sheep wanders away from a shepherd. But we're committing spiritual adultery. We're betraying Yeshua. We're breaking his heart. And there's probably nothing more wounding, more, nothing more grievous, nothing more awful and devastating than for your spouse to be unfaithful to you. And in the scriptures, you know, adultery is a capital offense. And God over and over again says, If you commit adultery against me, O Israel, my people, I will cut you off. So let me read this in Joshua twenty four nineteen. Joshua says to the people, You're not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He won't forgive your rebellion and your sins. So in chapter 24, Joshua is telling the people of Israel, you've got to obey the Lord. You must give your heart to Him. You must serve Him wholeheartedly. But then in this verse 19, he says, but He's a jealous God. You'll never do it. It's almost as if Joshua was saying, how can a people like us be in a love relationship with God? All we're going to do is continually break His heart. He's jealous. He's going to have to reject us. He's going to have to cut us off. 
So the jealousy of God calls for a relationship that's just a high bar for God. How can he keep in relationship with us, with a people who constantly are trampling on his heart? But it's also a very high bar for us. Because we're not called just to obey him and then look for blessings. We're called to love him exclusively. We're called to fall in love with him. We're called to give ourselves to him. So what's the answer to this dilemma? How do we ever scale such a high bar? How do we ever meet this call? And the answer is in the gospel. The new covenant that prophet Jeremiah promised to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In the Tanakh, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Lord says, I'm your God. And that's literally true in part, uh, and, and metaphorical in part. You know, if I say to someone, I'm at your disposal, and then you hit me, and you handcuff me, and you, you take me away as your slave, I say, I think you're taking me a bit too literally. <laughs> but you said you were at my disposal. Yeah, well, that's a figure of speech. That, that's a metaphor. <laughs> I just met, you know, can I do an errand for you? <laughs> I didn't mean for you to take it so far. Uh, and in the same way in the Hebrew Scriptures, when the Lord says, I'm your God, I give myself to you, that was in part metaphorical. But look forward to a literal fulfillment in the New Covenant Scriptures. Because in the New Covenant, it's literal. Ephesians 5, 25-27, we have Yeshua being spoken of. And we see all these metaphors there about Yeshua being the bridegroom. And us being the bride. So it says, husbands, love your wives. Just as Messiah loved the holy congregation. And gave himself up for her. To make her holy. Cleansing her. by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant bride. Without stain or wrinkle or blemish. But holy and blameless. There it is. Yeshua is characterized by jealous spousal love. But you see the purpose here of Yeshua's jealous love? He says the purpose here is to make you into a bride. Holy, radiant, pure, spotless, blameless. Yeshua is characterized by jealous love, and he also gave himself for you. He laid down his life for you. Envious human jealousy replaces love with anger. Uh, and many, by the way, many jealous husbands and wives have killed each other. They've killed their spouses. Because the selfishness and, and their pride just destroys the love. Destroys it. You don't love them anymore. You just hate them. But in contrast, godly love gets angry but stays love. Because on the overhead, human love, is, if pushed, will kill the lover who rejects them. But God's love, when pushed, will die for the one who rejects him. Indeed, Yeshua has died. He gave himself for us, even though we rejected him. Yeshua, our bridegroom God, has laid down his life for us, even when we were his enemies, to redeem us and to make us into his bride. Why, despite our spiritual adultery, why can God stay with us and not reject us? Because he's received the penalty himself. The penalty that we deserve, he suffered. John fifteen three. No greater love has a man than this, to lay down his life for his friend. And so how can we now move from, from mere moralistic therapeutic deism to actually loving God with all of my heart and soul and mind and strength 
to aching for his presence with a lovesick yearning and longing and wild abandon and ecstasy. You must turn from your sin. You must turn from yourself. You must turn to Yeshua, the lover of your soul. You must trust in his atoning death and resurrection for you and submit your life to him and embrace him as your Lord and Savior, your King, your Bridegroom God. How can God's angered love stay love? Because he died for you. Fill your heart with that truth. Cry out for Yeshua to reveal himself to you as the lover of your soul. In the 1600s, John Donne wrote this amazing, daring poem that's still just as amazing and daring and wild and powerful and ecstatic and erotic and gripping today. And he says this, Lord, take me to you. Imprison me. For I, except you enthrall me, never will be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. Be ravished by his love today. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. I said to come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Lord, thank you for your jealous love for us. A love so fierce that it pursues us like the hound of heaven and goes after us even when we wander away and play the harlot and tracks us down and rescues us from the pit and redeems us and restores us to you. Thank you, Lord Yeshua, for a love that defies human understanding. No greater love is this than a man lay down his life for his friend. And yet you, Yeshua, went so far beyond this for you loved us and gave yourself to us while we were not your friends. While we hated you and hated your love, we were your enemy. And through your self-sacrificial love, you turned us from your enemy into your friend and your lover and follower and subject and spouse. Help us to shoot Yeshua, to make you, you alone, our number one priority every day. To put you first in all that we do. Help us to be faithful to you, to obey your commands, walk in your ways, and transform our hearts that we would pursue greater and greater intimacy with you. That we'd run to you every day to spend time with you. We would pray to you and worship you and be in your presence. Let that be our passion. Even as an engaged couple or a newlywed are filled with passion to be with each other and bask in each other's presence and to please one another, Yeshua, fill us with spousal love for you, where we say, Your wish is my command. Yeshua, take me to you. Imprison me. For I, except you, enthrall me, never will be free, nor ever chaste. Except you ravish me. We pray this in your name, B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom, Hak Sameach.